All right, and today's reading is Deuteronomy 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried, and they, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike. I'm a pastor on staff here at Christ Community. If I haven't met you before, it's uh, really good to see you all here, including those who I have met. Um, As Anna alluded to, we have bumped everything up a little bit this service. We're going to spend kind of an extended time in worship in response at the end. Um, So never fear, you get to hear our awesome music team come back up at the end. I'm not usurping them today. Um, We are at the end of our series on the life of Moses we've been calling Deliver Us. And we've been tracing through some of the the major moments in his life and seeing how God steps in and works deliverance. And um, today we're ending ending where every uh, biography has to end. We're ending at Moses' death. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about, um, the title of the sermon is Deliver Us Through Death. And we're talking about an artifact here, um, or a moment in life we tend to want deliverance from, not through. And, uh, and yet we're going to see how Moses' story actually um, retells the topic of death for us. And as we step into this message today, I was reminded of an interview that took place on NPR uh, maybe about three months ago. It was an interview with Roz Chast. Roz is a cartoon artist for the New Yorker magazine. Some of you may read that. And uh, about a year ago, she released a memoir that she actually told through cartoons of what it was like to walk through the final years of her parents' life with them, which were many. I think they lived to be in their mid or late 90s. And um, she titled the memoir after the response she got from her parents every single time she brought up the topic. Like, hey, we need to do some planning about this. We need to talk about this a little bit. And this is how they would always respond. Can't we talk about something more pleasant? Can't we talk about something more pleasant? And I just thought the title of that memoir was 
was so dead on exactly how we approach, approach this topic. Can't we talk about something more pleasant? Whenever something comes on the news, or maybe if you're like reading uh, uh, news stories on your phone or tablet or on the paper, if, if that's what you're doing, um, and just, can't we talk about something more, more pleasant? Let's turn the page, let's change the channel. Death is not something that uh, we love to talk about. It's a topic we tend to actually avoid. In fact, I think there's, there's two ways that we, we tend to respond to death when the topic comes up. One of them is this kind of like blind avoidance. This is what teenagers are really famous for. Um, we we kind of just don't think death is going to happen to us. It's just, it's this thing out there that's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and we just avoid it blindly. This is the only way we can understand how my friends and I handled fireworks in high school. Um, we just were convinced that it wasn't going to kill us. We had this blind avoidance of death. But then on the other side, as we tend to grow up and we have experiences in life that may be the loss of a loved one or, or a experience close to death ourselves, we kind of fall on this other extreme that I'm calling this kind of naive reframing, where we try to say, well, I guess we can't avoid death because it's right here in front of us, so let me just re-explain it, let me redefine it, let me repackage it so it's not quite so scary and it's not, it's not what it actually is. And as we come to this topic today and we look at kind of those two points on a spectrum, I'd love to ask us, are we satisfied with that? I mean, however it is that you think about this topic, if you do, are you satisfied with your response? Whether it's just to avoid the topic altogether or just to re-explain it so it's not so bad. Or assuming that we're on the same page with being dissatisfied with those responses, maybe the question should be, is there another way? Is there a third way? Is there a reasonable response to death that doesn't avoid it, but also takes it for what it really is? And as we come to the close of our series this morning and the close of Moses' story, I want to suggest that there is. We're going to see in our story today that as Moses walks towards his death, he, is, he has this truth that is deep in his heart, that has taken root in the center of his being, that fundamentally changes the way he responds to death or thinks about his death. And that truth is this. Our end is not the end. Our end is not the end. And we're going to unpack that statement as we look at Moses' story today. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, um, you can toggle over or flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 34. We'll be hanging out mostly in Deuteronomy 34 today. If you have one of our community Bibles, it's on page 177, uh, just to help get you there real quick. And as you're turning to that story, I want to get us from last week to this week. So last week, we left Moses on a mountain. He was on Mount Sinai, and he was receiving from the Lord, literally written in stone, the stipulations for this new special relationship that Israel was going to enjoy with him. And since then, 40 years have passed, which is starting to feel like a theme in this series. Like every time we turn around, another 40 years are gone. So now Moses is 120 years old, 120 years old. And now he's on top of another mountain. This one is called Mount Nebo. And Mount Nebo is special because it's probably the best place to, on top of this mountain, look out and see the whole promised land, the whole tract of land that God had promised to the nation of Israel. I've got a picture of it here um, that'll help us see it a little bit. Um, you can kind of see there in the left corner, there's a body of water that's called the Dead Sea, um, so named because the salt water concentration, or the salt concentration is so high, nothing can live in it. And coming out to the right, you can barely see in some places, so going north, is the Jordan River. The Jordan River is thought as the easternmost boundary of the promised land. And so what Israel has done is they've come up from the south and they're now on the eastern boundary of their promised land. And all that they have to do to get in is to cross over the Jordan River. 
and to begin taking control of the land that God has promised for them. And it's on top of this mountain, with this view in mind, that Moses uh, hears from the Lord. And so let's start Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. In other words, look, I am faithful to do what I promised I would do. I know that that promise was made hundreds of years ago. Generations have passed waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. But I want you to look and see that I will do what I promised to do. Here is the land that I promised to bring these people to. And the Lord goes on. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Shall I go, shall I go over there? He doesn't get to go. 120 years of this guy's life has led to this single moment. For the last 40 years, he's been dragging these screaming, kicking babies through the desert, and he, has, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land? All he gets to do is look at it and then die? I mean, on the face of it, this seems like the most cruel joke ever played after all that time. Here, here's a taste. You can see it, but now you're dead. And if we don't know what's happened between these two mountains... It seems like that's what's going on here, but that's actually not. And I'd love for you um, to have a finger in Deuteronomy 34 and flip over to Numbers chapter 20. To Numbers chapter 20. Um, as I alluded to, the trip through the wilderness with the Israelites is just the worst. They complain the whole way. Moses, we're thirsty. Moses, we're hungry. Moses, we don't want the food you packed for us. Moses, we didn't have to go to the bathroom when you asked us before. They complain the entire way through the desert. And Numbers chapter 20 is just one example of that complaining. This time it's the water. Um, They're thirsty. They say their cattle are thirsty. And so they pull out their familiar line to Moses and Aaron and say, well, you should have just left us back there to die instead of bringing us out here for thirst. It's a little dramatic, but that was their style. And, And so Moses and Aaron go together before the Lord with another complaint from Israel, and say, okay, what are we going to do? So let's pick it up in Numbers chapter 20, verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he, Moses, said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore... You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Now, if you're um, familiar with the story, you probably know that there's a wide variety of answers to the question, why is God so harsh to Moses in this instance? Like, what exactly has Moses done that has been enough to say, no, you can't go in the promised land now? Now, When I was growing up, I thought it was because he struck the rock instead of spoke to it like God um, commanded him to. And I think there's something to that. But as I was studying Um, for this message this week, I came across what I think is a much more compelling explanation for why God takes what Moses did so seriously. Did you catch the word he used when he addressed the Israelites? He said, shall we bring water out of this rock? Who? Moses, you and Aaron, we? 
Are you the ones who bring water out of a rock? Are you the ones who have bread raining down from heaven to sustain the people? Are you the ones who parted the waters of the Red Sea? Are you the ones who have done any of this to bring Israel out of this land? You see, the sin that Moses is committing here, and a lot of Jewish scholars will agree as they study this passage, is the sin of presumption. In other words, Moses is taking the place of God as the deliverer and as the king of these people. Which makes it really ironic that he calls them rebels and yet stands up and takes God's glory for an act that God will do. And this is really at the root of our sin, isn't it? I mean, think back to the very first sin that was ever committed. In the Garden of Eden, Eve is being tempted to eat this apple. She says, I can't eat it or else I'll die. And what does Satan say to her? What does the serpent say? You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. You see, at the root of all of our sin is the fact that we want to supplant God and sit on his throne, ruling in our lives. We want to be the ones who are the arbiters of justice and mercy and meaning. We want to take his place, replace him as king, as supreme ruler of our lives, which makes us rebels, which makes us traitors. And we all know what happens to traitors. So even though Moses refers to these people as rebels and as traitors, it's actually he who shows himself to be rebelling against God's rule. And because of that, he can't go into the promised land because he has rebelled against God. Now, Moses can do math, and so can we. So we can understand that the second he leaves that rock and begins walking towards the Jordan River, towards the boundary of the promised land, every single step he takes is one step closer to his death. And I want you to imagine this with me, just to try to put ourselves in this story. Imagine that you're Moses and you're, you are leading these people and you're getting close to the promised land. And this couple behind you is talking excitedly about the kind of house they're going to build and when they get into the promised land or the kind of business they're going to start or run when they're there. Maybe how many children they're going to have to fill their house with. And this pit forms in your stomach because you realize that though you want to be excited with them, that you're never going to get to experience all that. In fact, the one thing that has to take place before they can experience it is that Moses has to die. And so here he is, however many steps, however many miles are between that rock and Mount Nebo, Moses is inching closer to his death. Until one day, we come to Deuteronomy chapter 34. They've made the journey. They've arrived at the front door to the promised land. And Moses has climbed this mountain. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Not in the promised land. In the land of Moab. According to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. You know, at first pass, this seems like the worst ending to any story in the history of stories. 
Here's this guy, 120 years old. His entire life has been about getting the people from Egypt to the promised land. And here he is, dying a stone's throw from the finish. I mean, he's looking at it. He can see the finish line. Alone on a mountain where nobody knows where he is, with gas left in the tank. He could have made it there. And if Moses is the main character of this story, then this is a terrible ending. But we know that Moses is not the main character of this story. We, Moses that, we know that Moses' end is not the end, not for him and not for God's people. See, Moses has never been the main character of the story. He wasn't the main character of the story when his parents hid him among the reeds in the Nile in a basket when he should have died by the hand of Pharaoh. He wasn't the main character of the story when God called him from his meaningless wandering in the desert through fire to take place in God's plan to deliver Israel. He wasn't the main character of the story when the blood smeared over the doorposts of the Israelite people saved them, allowed the angel of death to pass over them. He wasn't the main character of his story when God parted this, the, this, the water of the Red Sea to let them walk through on dry ground, to be delivered from the sure defeat at the hands of pursuing Pharaoh's army. He wasn't the main character when God made bread rain down from heaven to feed and sustain the people of Israel, to deliver them from their starvation in the desert. He wasn't the main character when God wrote, literally wrote in stone a new relationship that he would have with his people. Moses has never been the main character of his story. It's the great irony of his story. And certainly, here in his death, he's not the main character. His end is not the end, not for the mission, not for God's people, not for himself. And we need to hear this today, maybe in our context more than most. Um, but before I make that point, I want to I make a quick aside because I don't want to be misheard this morning. Um, listen, death is still the enemy. And if you have had a recent brush with death, whether it's been a loss of a loved one or maybe a diagnosis that's scary, please hear me say that we ought to grieve death. Death has no place in the created order that God brought when he formed this earth and this world. And let me take it a step further and say the pursuit of wellness and vitality is a good pursuit. It's a good thing. God created us to be embodied physical beings, and we ought to take care of what God has created for us. And if you work in an industry that is about creating more opportunities for people to be well, that is a good thing that you're doing. I'm not saying any of those things. What I am saying is that something happens when we cross over from the good desire to be healthy and well to the ultimate desire that causes us to cling to this life with everything we've got. Kevin Van Hooser is an uh, author and, and professor and theologian at the seminary I went to. And uh, he just has a great way with words, and I'd love you to hear how he describes this. The modern-day equivalent to the cathedral is the hospital. The white-robed doctor has replaced the priest as the mediator of salvation. And instead of bread and wine, the new sacrament is medicine. In drugs is our hope and salvation. Listen to this. Death is still the enemy, but the new savior is technology. Look, if, if our end is the end, if this is all it is, then we ought to do everything we can to push back death. We ought to do everything we can to cling to this life, no matter how we do it. But... If our end is not the end, if there's something more to, this, to our existence than just this life, 
then that ought to change the way we approach the topic of death. We shouldn't come to it with a blind avoidance just to, to try to forget about it, push it out of sight, out of mind. We shouldn't come to it with this naive reframing to try to say, well, it's not actually as bad as it is or it's different than what it is. But there's a third way. And what Moses has done in preparation for his inevitable death is the key to that third way. So let's go back to our text. Deuteronomy 34, verse 8. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Death is still the enemy. The people still weep for Moses because death is not supposed to be a part of the world we experience. But then this next sentence, this is just fascinating. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. They wept for him. They mourned for him, but it wasn't forever. They didn't go on endlessly moping about his death. The mourning period ended and it was done. And then there was pandemonium, right? All sorts of candidates emerged for this now vacant leadership position. They had all sorts of debates with each other. People started dividing in all different factions. They followed their various leaders into the promised land with some success here and there, and ultimately the mission peters out, right? No, none of that happens. Verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Look, when we think about this, when we think about the amount of people, an entire nation that's following Moses, and when we think about how terrible they are with leadership, right? I mean, they've been terrible the whole way. We think about the gravity of the task at hand. They've got to go, this land is not uninhabited. They've got to go conquer this land, and they are not a military nation. The fact that the, the transition in leadership was so seamless is remarkable that they would follow Joshua immediately as they followed Moses. How does something like that happen? Well, it's the one phrase here in verse 9. For Moses had laid his hands on him. Moses laid his hands on him. In other words, through the direction of the Lord, Moses identifies this young man who, who has leadership potential and who will be the next leader, and he pours into him. Because Moses' end is not the end. It was never the goal for Moses to take the people into the promised land. It was always the goal just for the people to get to the promised land, whether it was Moses who led them there or not. And we know this because when Moses dies, we turn the page, and the next chapter begins. And knowing this, knowing that his death is inevitable, and knowing that his end is not the end, Moses pours into the next generation of leadership. He gives them leadership responsibilities and feedback and tips and coaching and opportunities to to lead in various things. He is pouring into the next generation because he understands deep in his heart that his end is not the end. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't reframe it. But he embraces it and acts on it in a remarkable way. And as we follow Moses' lead this morning, as we close out this series and we, we approach the topic of death, I want to I offer three takeaways, three takeaways that will help us as we think about uh, how to respond to the topic of death. Uh, and then we'll wrap this up. Number one, today, start walking in God's presence. Today, start walking in God's presence. Moses, as he approaches Mount Nebo and as he climbs Mount Nebo, which, by the way, at 120 is impressive, 
Um, as he approaches and climbs Mount Nebo, he's got an appointment on top of that mountain, and it's the last appointment he'll have on this earth. But it's not an appointment with death. It's an appointment with God, which would be really, really scary if he didn't know God before. You don't know how that conversation is going to go, right? But if he has spent 120 years of his life taking small, consistent, not perfect, but consistent steps, walking in relationship with God and in God's presence, then that last meeting is not really that scary, is it? It's like meeting your best friend for coffee, really. So today, start walking in God's presence. This could look several ways. This could look like going back to our guest table at the end of the service and getting an open here bookmark, which gives uh, just a small passage of, of Scripture every single day to read, to be in God's Word, to be listening to what He has said to us regularly. It can look like creating time to be in prayer every day just to respond to what God has said. It could look like prioritizing being at church on Sunday morning or community group during the week. It means putting ourselves in environments where God's presence is and exposing ourselves to him regularly. This life of walking in God's presence, it is started by an act and it is defined by this act throughout the whole thing and it is repentance. Repentance. Repentance simply means, the word repent simply means to turn away from. To turn away from. And the call of the life walking in God's presence is to turn away from our desire to be our own king or queen or supreme ruler. Is to turn away from the things in our life that are deadly to us. Look, for Moses, for him to accept the inevitability of his death means he accepts his culpability in it. Let me say that again. For Moses to accept the inevitability of his death means he accepts the culpability in it. God has told him he is going to die because of his sin. Because of his sin. And so to walk in God's presence means that we acknowledge our sin, the fact that we try to take God's place in our life, and we turn from it and submit ourselves to him. And let me just tell you something. If you're here this morning and you have never, ever done that before, never started to walk in God's presence, let me tell you something. Not because I'm trying to be narrow-minded or force a, a, a worldview on you, but because just because it's true and because I love you, you're not ready for this appointment. You're not ready for this appointment. Let me beg you, please, to repent from your life, to turn from your sins, from your desire to be your own leader and submit to God's good leadership in your life, to walk now, today, in God's presence so that you will be ready. So number one, today, start walking in God's presence. Number two, today, start looking to the next generation. Start looking to the next generation. See, Moses knows that his end is not the end, that the people still need to get to the promised land. And because he embraces the inevitability of his death, because he embraces the fact that it is not his end, he begins to pour into the next generation to raise up the leaders who will take his place. The reality is that because we are finite creatures, because we will die, there are things in this life we will leave unfinished, goals we will leave unaccomplished. Who's going to come along after us and pick up the mantle? Because as shocking as it may seem, God's mission is going to go on in this city after I die and after we die. So who's going to come in? Who are going to be the leaders that will be raised up to continue doing what God is doing in this city, in this world? 
This also can look a lot of ways. It can look like identifying someone who you want to take out to coffee and uh, have, a, have a, just a conversation with. This can look like identifying someone who you want to have more regular contact with. You can pour into their life. Community group leaders, who do you want to be in your community group? Who is someone in your group who you can raise up to be the next leaders after you're gone from that, from that position? If you are uh, in a family at home or you're living with roommates, how can you set up a system of family worship that will expose the, a, a relationship with God and a faith in Christ to the next generation? Uh, Christ Community is actually a church that does this particularly well um, institutionally, and I'm, I'm proof of that, which is kind of cool. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, Christ Community's leadership asked the question, how can we pour into the next generation of pastoral leaders? And the answer to that question was to start what we call a pastoral fellowship, where young seminary grads are brought in and are full associate pastors for two years, but in a distinctly learning role to prepare them to go out and to be the next leaders of the church. And over the past 10 years, almost 25 people have entered into that program and have gone out or will go out to be leaders in this church. What can you be doing to pour into the next generation? And then number three, and this is the most important one. Today, start seeing death for what it is. Today, start seeing death for what it is. This passage ends by talking about how Moses is this prophet par excellence in the history of Israel. Nobody matches Moses' power in the works that he does or the authority that he speaks with until one day a prophet does match him. Until one day the greatest prophet in the history of the world came and he spoke with the authority of Moses and he worked with the power of Moses and yet he did one better. Because as great as a prophet as Moses was, and he was great, he's still dead. Which means as we approach the topic of death, he really can't help us. But Jesus, when he died on a mountain alone, he didn't stay dead. But instead, on the third day, he burst out of the grave to new eternal life that he offers all who will turn from their life and follow him. It is only because Jesus is alive, historically and bodily, that we can have any hope whatsoever when we approach the topic of death. And it is a good hope, too, because he is alive. So today, start seeing death for what it is. Well, as we close this morning and as we finish this series, I want to I end this series where Moses ends it, uh, on the top of Mount Nebo. We said earlier that there's this picture of this really disappointing end to the story. Moses seeing the place he was supposed to go. But that's not really how the top of the mountain was for Moses at all. Because he didn't die alone. The picture of, is, is of Moses sitting next to the one whose presence is the only presence he ever wanted. And as he looks out, he sees the vast goodness and faithfulness of this God who he has walked with his whole life. And the original language says that Moses dies by the mouth of the Lord. It's this very intimate picture. It's almost like God leans in and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And like that, Moses is just in God's presence alone. And the beauty and the glory that he sees there so far surpasses anything any promised land could offer. Because his end is not the end. 
And hit this, the end of this story is not the end of a book, but a chapter. And Moses moves into the final movement of his life, which is an eternity in God's presence, being exactly who he was created to be. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for you and for me as we finish this series, is to know the hope that our end is not the end. And on the other side is God. I had, um, I had prepared a prayer for us this morning as I finished the sermon, but um, I, I shared this last service. I thought I would be doing a great disservice if I didn't um, offer anybody here who has not, for, for the first time, repented of their sin and of their life pursuing themselves to turn to God and to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross and in the empty tomb. So I'm going to pray over us this morning. And um, I would invite you, if that describes you, to think through these words. And if you're ready to pray through these words um, and consider what it means to turn from your life. Um, But let's go now to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it is only because of what your Son has done for us that we can call you Father. It is only because you have come, lived a perfect life that we were meant to live, died the death that makes payment for our sins, and came alive again to a perfect and unending life that you offer all who will repent and follow you. Father, this morning, we confess that we are traitors to your rule. And there is nothing we can do to earn our way back into a good relationship with you. Lord, forgive us of our sins for the sake of your Son. And through the power of your Spirit, would you help us to live a life of faithfulness faithfulness and followership to you so that we may die with that the best of titles, servant of the Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, who is our only hope in life and death. Amen.